Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Jamie here. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying the content in my Philacrosophy podcast, my Inside the Eight podcasts, or my a Lacrosse Weekend blogs, I would encourage you to check out the store at jamefreesports.com. I've created awesome content for coaches, players, and parents in both men's and women's lacrosse. For coaches, the coaches training program. It's, it's a combination of cutting edge and practical. We have Division I men's and women's coaches all the way down to high school, JV, and youth. For players, I've created JM3 Player Academies, which are designed to teach every variation of every skill for boys and girls across. And for parents, I've created JM3 Recruiting Portal, where I've taken all of the content from my blogs, my podcasts, from webinars, and other interviews, and pooled all of this information in one place where parents can get access to incredible content and insights from the very coaches that you're hoping to play for. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Joe Keegan to the Philacrosophy podcast. Joe is a writer and a stats analyst for the Premier Lacrosse League uh, and uh, an all around great guy to talk across to. So fired up to have you on the show. Joe, how you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be back. We have 20 more games to talk about. I'm excited. Have you gone back and watched all the games again yet? Uh, yeah, I've watched I've watched them all a couple times. Um, we'll go through and watch them a third time soon. But, yeah, I usually – I mean, I, I rewatch them, like, right away before I do the newsletter, you know, to try to pick up on stuff. Because the first time I'm watching, I'm on Twitter and just trying to enjoy it. And then the second time is really where I start to notice more stuff than I did. Right. Notice the nuances. Yeah, I agree. I kind of do the same thing. I, I actually try to watch them in real time and chop them up and, and then just catch up with yep. the real time during commercials and halftime and stuff like that. And then I can go back after and kind of rewatch. But, man, it was such a great uh, championship series. Um, and uh, I just want to hear uh, more about uh, your thoughts. I thought it was some of the best lacrosse we've seen. Uh, and it's funny how people were talking about it when, uh, when the format was announced, right, that all seven teams were going to make the postseason, that somebody could, in theory, go 0-4 and then get hot and make a run. Uh, I think we saw right there, right, with chaos, how little separates, uh, how little separation there is between these seven teams, right? Even Chrome last year was – the worst team in the league, and obviously they made a lot of changes, starting with bringing in Coach Sudan and revamping half their roster with guys like uh, like Jesse Bernhardt, uh, Eli Salama, Reese Eddy. Like all those young guys looked really good, especially on the defensive end. Uh, looks like a completely new team, and it was one of seven teams that could have hoisted the cup. I think they all legitimately had a chance. Yeah, for sure. 
it's the PLL and, and the Ravels, what, what an amazing job they did to pull this off. I mean, I know it re required an incredible amount of planning uh, and an incredible amount of discipline, um, but they did it. What do you think the big picture benefits were to lacrosse? Because it seems to me like this was one of the best viewed events in the history of lacrosse, pro lacrosse anyways. And like you said, it was incredible. Uh, the level of play was incredible to watch. I think the benefits are huge. I think Mike and Paul and the team acting so fast to put together a plan and not just any tournament, but a tournament that fit right in that Olympic window, capitalize off a ton of TV slots on NBC. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know how many games were on gold. What was it? Six games were exclusively gold and, 14 of them were actually on TV, which is unheard of. I think we brought in a lot of new fans. And Paul mentioned this uh, in a podcast that I listened to him on the other day, but we learned that uh, the current lacrosse fan, there's an appetite for lacrosse every night, two games of lacrosse every night. I yeah. think there were a lot of people who have always been lacrosse fans, right? And you see them on Twitter once a week in the spring on Saturdays, watching college lacrosse and talking about the games. We saw those people coming back Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every night for games, which was incredible. I know, and I think there's an appetite for uh, a 10-man ride newsletter every day. <laughs> yeah, it was fun to write every day. <laughs> that, was a that, was a, that was a big effort, man. You, you, uh, you put a ton of effort into the 10-man ride newsletter. Um, for people that don't know what this is, Joe puts together really one of the best newsletters that you can find. Um, and it's just full of really interesting in information, analysis, stories, um, and videos that are uh, embedded with GIFs or something right into, the, right into the email. So it's pretty awesome. How do people get that, Joe? They can go to uh, premierlacrosseleague.com and there's a link to subscribe right there. Uh, it's also in my Twitter bio. Uh, at Joe Keegs, yeah, um, the, and you know you've been running a newsletter too. It's it's a lot of fun to put together uh, something that has that that schedule, right? So you can kind of uh, people can set their clocks to it or their calendars now that it's weekly instead of daily. But uh, they can they know what to expect in their inbox, and there's been a ton of conversations with the readers, uh, good feedback. And uh, I, I think that community that I was talking about, all those people who are watching those games in real time, really feeds into the energy of the newsletter. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let's go back to um, our roots of how we met and the conversations that we had uh, and then relate it to this past championship series. Um, I, I, I think we met through a mutual uh, friend of the late, great Dave Huntley, um, and um, maybe you could just share with us really quickly how, you know, the, what, what you were doing with, with Moneyball Lacrosse and what you were doing with your relationships with Hans and then how that evolved into your thinking now. And we'll get into the specifics of all of that, but just give people a quick background on that, if you would. Yeah, of course. Coach Huntley uh, put on a uh, presentation at LaxCon for years called Lax by the Numbers. And I started attending LaxCon probably 2014 or 2015. Um, and I've always been a big 
math guy, economics guy, wanted to uh, explore that side of the sport. I loved where the NBA was going with analytics um, and follow that closely. So that was the session that I had to attend, right, out of all of them. And uh, it, it became like an annual tradition to go see what Coach Huntley was talking about, whether it was uh, with his Team Canada team and how they used analytics to win the gold medal in 2014, or whether it was what he was studying in the indoor league, uh, the NLL with the shooting percentage based on the time remaining on the shot clock. So he he divided that shot clock, that 30-second clock, into thirds and found that the first third was the best shooting percentage uh, because those were your fast breaks and uh, odd man rushes. And then that middle third was actually the worst. So instead of shooting percentage dipping as the clock wound down, uh, it actually spiked back up towards the end of the clock. So he used that to teach his teams, or coach his teams to extend those possessions and wear down the defense and don't settle for the best look, but look for, I mean, sorry, don't settle for the first look, look for the best look. So he had, uh, he had studied the international game and the indoor game through that analytical lens. And uh, around 2016, 2017 is when we started uh, tracking these type of stats for the outdoor game. And he became really interested because he was coaching the Atlanta Blaze, uh, really interested in the stats that we were tracking, uh, shot location, those XY coordinates that we use for our shot charts. We track whether a shot was assisted or unassisted. Um, and then obviously the big one, right, is handedness, whether your stick was to the inside or to the outside and how that impacts your shooting percentage based on where you are. So Hunts is uh, – Hunts lacks by the numbers, pulled on our data set and found that your shooting percentage increases, uh, depending on where you are, the increase can be greater, uh, but it increases when your stick is to the middle. Something that has just been accepted in the indoor game, right? The righties never cross over to the lefty side of the floor and same thing with the lefties. They never cross over to the righty side of the floor, uh, but in field, We've never really observed that um, and almost kind of done the opposite at times with traditional American midfielders. Right. Whereas the traditional American attackman, that lefty attackman sits right on the same side as the lefty forwards and box. Exactly. Yeah. Which leads to midfielders having a pretty poor shooting percentage a lot of the times, not because they're bad shooters, but they're taking tough shots. No doubt. My, my theory on that is, is exactly the same, obviously. It's pretty obvious when you look at the numbers. And I like to use the analogy of, you know, when you're in college and you're like, it's two in the morning and you're trying to finish a paper and you're like, you know what, I'm really tired and I bet I could do a better paper if I just went to sleep and just gave myself another day. I'll take the grade reduction. And um, that's exactly what happens when you decide to take an alley shot is you're just basically taking a grade reduction. You're starting with a B. And a B might be okay. It might work for you. A, B's, a B shot's not a bad shot, but you'd have to have a really good angle on that alley shot and have the range and the, and, and the best possible. But oftentimes that B turns into a C. And, and it's the same thing with players. I mean, if you are a player 
and you are playing on the wrong side of the field regularly, you just you're if you were an A on the, on your natural side, you're going to be a B on the other side, and that's your starting point. So it's it's massively impactful, um, and it seems to work in every quadrant of the field, every X Y, other than maybe dead center, because when you're dead center, you know it's a pretty good shot no matter what. Yeah, of course, anybody between the hash marks is good. Uh, and yeah, like you said, it, it, it's it's true for every player. Um, it's really the alley dodge is the mid range jumper of lacrosse, and we grew up at least my generation and the kids who are playing now grew up watching highlight tapes of Kyle Harrison and Paul Rabel sticking those shots running down the alley. Uh, not everybody is Kyle Harrison and Paul Rabel. That's just how it is so yeah. unless you're them i would recommend trying to get to your uh, strong side and starting with that a rather than you know start putting your ceiling capping your ceiling off at a b um you talked a little bit about assisted goal percentage um assisted shooting percentages um can you talk a little more detail about the the impact and the, and the importance of that stat yeah so every shot that we track, we track whether there was an assist on it or not. So obviously in a box score, you only see assists for goals. Uh, but we track something called an assist opportunity, which is just a shot or a pass that leads to a shot. They call it a potential assist in basketball. Um, and it's some people – don't fully understand it. They think that we're just rewarding somebody for setting up a missed shot. That's not exactly the case. We're trying to separate the result from the process, how we got there. Uh, and we also wanted to study what the impact on a pass is for your shooting percentage. And it's no surprise, right? We're just confirming what everybody already knew your shooting percentage is much higher off the catch than it is off the dodge. So I think that's a different way to evaluate players who some guys like the Kyle Harrison's and the Paul Rabels and those downhill dodging midfielders. Those are the guys who take a lot of shots off the dodge. So naturally their shooting percentage is going to be a little bit lower. And we see it in the NBA, right? Like you need shot creators and shot makers I don't know if an offense works with six off-ball guys, uh, and it definitely doesn't work with six on-ball guys, dodge-to-shoot guys. So you need that balance. So now let's take the conversation to two-man game. And I know that you've uh, been so great to share with me your stats when I did my hang-up two-man presentation. For people that want to see this, go to uh, twomangame.com. It's worth looking at, this hang-up two-man um, concept. It's not totally different from what you would have understood two man as, but it's but it's it's it is a different a little bit of a different look. Um, what is the impact of two man game on the stats that we just talked about as far as sticks to the middle as and, and assisted shot opportunities? It helps everything. So the big three: your uh, assist rate, which is the percent of your shots that are assisted, goes up with the pick your stick to the middle rate goes up with the pick. And of course your shooting percentage, which is heavily influenced by those two things goes up with the pick. So we saw 
back to the uh, team that got hot late in the series. The Chaos started running more two-man games in the postseason, and that's what really sparked their run. Uh, they were dedicated. They, they shifted those midfield lines around, um, and that Dane Stotts, uh, Dane Smith, Austin Stotts, Kevin Buchanan line was so good in the two-man game. They had a perfect righty-lefty balance and created a lot of stick-to-the-middle assisted looks, which are the best shots. I remember being at um, Pro Night. Um, Hunts actually spoke at that Pro Night. I don't know if you were there, but it was at the IMLCA convention on on like the Thursday night before the convention started. And they had Pro Night, and I remember they had NLL, and at the time MLL, players and coaches presenting. Um, I think it was December 2017. And Jordan McIntosh, who's one of my favorite players to watch in the PLL, um, him and uh, Ben McIntosh, no relation, brilliant right-handed players, so smart, so smooth, so so unguardable in their own way. Um, but Jordan was talking about the analytics and the stuff that they use with the Georgia Swarm, and he talked a ton about their shooting percentages or scoring percentages when they would have three ball swings in the course of a possession versus one or two. And when they would get to three times swinging it from the righties to the lefties, back to the righties, back to the lefties, that, that, that second and third time, I can't remember what the stats exactly were, but I wanted to bring it up because I think, I think when you add ball swings to the two-man game improvements and all those stats, I, I think it's going to kind of put it all on steroids and it's going to open things up. And frankly, when the chaos were playing well, they did that really well. And when they weren't as effective, they didn't swing the ball as much. And I just wanted to get your opinion on that and see if you had any thoughts. I think that's a really interesting concept. And I think that that taking your midfielders, um, this is probably the biggest reason why Chaos did that so well later. Taking your midfielders and putting their sticks to the middle leads to those ball swings, right? Because they're attacking the middle of the field. If you're starting in the middle and driving to the outside towards that alley, then you have to go through X to swing it, and a lot of these pro defenses recover by then. That's right. And at, at, at the same time, part of the concept that I remember hearing recently, maybe in a – I did a virtual lacrosse summit, I think, in January, and it, and it, and it might have been like Eddie Como or Paul Day or one of these pro – pro NLL coaches was talking about the best two-man games occur when the pick is being set while the ball is in the air. Very interesting concept. And I was really thinking about it at the time and trying to wrap my head around how you would make that happen. And then this summer, I, I, I was playing a lot of pickup lacrosse. A lot of four-on-four four with a goalie, which was basically pairs off. It was like pairs, two, you know, lefty pair, righty pair. And it was just on-ball and off-ball, two-man game, picks and repicks. And I started realizing the value of not playing out your two-man game till the bitter end. Actually swinging the ball before it was over. Because it would oftentimes open up a nation's look or a give-and-go anyways, once you get the defense hung up. And as you swing the ball, 
you are creating the situation that these co pro indoor coaches were talking about because the off ball side was in the middle of picking and repicking and seals and slips. And all of a sudden the ball's on, on, on its way and a pick is on its way. And now all of a sudden that is, that is occurring. And I wanted to get your opinion on that as it relates to all these analytics and any thoughts you might have. That's really interesting. Um, I love that concept. I think that's, that's the one thing, especially in the box game, it could really be studied because of how many possessions there are. Um, that, that studying the off ball play analytically, um, man, I would love to have the time to do that or have like the tracking data like they have in the NBA. Yeah. Um, because those actions just, yeah, it, it can really tie up the defense when your off ball defense is looking to help. Right. And then you swing it. Um, that's when you can attack when they're really out of position. That's interesting. You remember the, um, I think it was in the, the playoff game where Dane Smith was involved with a two man game and he's in the, he's, he hung up both guys. So he's sitting in the, in the pocket. So yeah. I'm, terminology I'm using is, is when the defense is switching and they're hung up or if a defender goes under and you stop, you can sit in the pocket. Um, and it's a great place from which to feed. And he, all of a sudden there was a backside action going on and Josh Byrne cut down the backside and it went right through him. And that was kind of the epitome of where I think the game in field lacrosse can go. And it's really hard to guard people in the pocket. It's, especially if longs are picking for shorts because right. now it's going to be harder to put pressure on that ball carrier and the long the pole is going to be ready to switch it but he doesn't really want to and you're going to be able to put your on ball defender in a position where like okay well if you want to come over play me i will beat you over the top of this pick and if you want to back off i'm going to sit in the pocket and if you want to go under you know eventually we're going to shoot it like zed did you know, when the, when the chaos went under a pick and he just shot it. And all of a sudden, you've got this whole hang-up two-man thing going on. But instead of really focusing on what you can do on your side, you can focus on the other side. Mm -hmm. Similar to when a Dodgers taught, hey, don't look at your defender, look, at, look through your defender. You should really think about looking through your two-man game. And now you start looking to the other side. And when you start swinging the ball, you might be feeding a cutter the way that Dane Smith fed Josh Byrne. But you might also just be swinging it. And essentially, it becomes the concept of feeding a feeder. And now you're give and go and your nation's looks. And the three-man actions that were going on also begin to happen. Um, so some really interesting stuff when you start thinking about the analytics. And um, I'm, I'm trying to give you a lot, of, uh, a lot more projects. Yeah, I love it. Keep them coming. <laughs> we got uh, we got all off season, but yeah, those uh, slowing that two man game down. Um, and this is this was your main point or one of your main points in that uh, hang up webinar. Slowing that two man game down just puts so much more pressure on the defense. And Dane Smith he can beat anybody right with his feet, but when he's sitting in that pocket like that, um, it just puts so much, it puts 
those two guys who are defending the two-man game in conflict for a longer period of time than it would if he tried to sprint off a guy's shoulder, right? Because he could try to run by and they're in conflict for a second and they either switch it or they don't. And that puts them in a really tough spot. Uh, It makes me think of – so in basketball, uh, and I keep referencing basketball a lot, uh, but their research is just so advanced. So – James Harden, uh, in one of the labs that tests all the NBA players for, you know, their explosiveness, their vertical, this and that, James Harden tested in that lab. And the thing that he was best at, his best attribute, and he's by far better at it than anyone in the league, is deceleration, which sounds like a ridiculous thing. But he stretches that moment once he gets into the paint, right, and elongates that window during which he can be fouled or he can pass out after picking up his dribble or he can attack the rim and he can do all those things because he just slows the game down like a guy like Dane Smith or Jordan McIntosh does while they're dodging and just opens up so many more options for them. Yeah, such a great point. I mean, slowing down in the two-man game and slowing down in regular dodging. I mean, you you saw a lot of really fast guys running into the next guy. And then you saw players that were – that when they slowed down, they became harder to slide to. I mean, you know, with McIntosh, you know, he would just jog in and all of a sudden he hits one a little bit and then he'd just be shooting and no one's sliding. And because they're also looking right at you. And so it, it just opens up that window. Um so yeah, some really, really interesting stuff. The last, the last thing that popped into my head back to the ball swings concept was remember the goal when Stotts, Austin Stotts was kind of going down, you know, got doubled, rolled back, kicked it up, it zipped over, and then all of a sudden it came right back to him. And then yeah. he had the most unbelievable uh, leaner. It was insane. Um, but it was – it was so interesting that that is, you know, when, when my opinion, when they were at their best is when the ball would swing and they would not necessarily be looking for their own pick and roll as much as swinging it and letting the other side find it. And that's, that's really what nations is all about and why that's so difficult to guard. A nations is a two pass pick and roll. And so instead of letting the defense guard and rotate like the clip you put in your newsletter today, of Brody Merrill on his second slide rotating to the throwback on the pick and roll. If you throw it to the other side, they have to go guard that side. And that person is still going to find the open man. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you you did see this, you see this happen a lot um, with mirrors and throwbacks with a reversal, Um, but you don't see it as often, uh, you know, because everyone kind of wants to feed their pick and roll. Um, So it's, it's, it's really, really cool stuff. It's really interesting. Um, what are some of the things, new things that you've been thinking about as it relates to, you know, um, two man game or dodging or shooting percentages, uh, before we move on? We're thinking about tracking dodges this off season and, uh, getting an idea of which on ball defenders, um, prevent shots and, uh, prevent slides and can hold their own on an island and then get an idea of which guys 
draw that slide and then move the ball on to create a good opportunity. I think assist opportunities and second assists and second assist opportunities gives us an idea of those unselfish players, right? Because if you draw a double and move it for a shot, uh, that's, that's the goal of dodging, right? That's the ultimate goal is that step down shot. Um, but I think we'd like to do something for defenders like that because current stats and uh, this is something that you've been talking about a lot recently uh, as it relates to on-ball defense, um, cost turnovers and just throwing slap checks doesn't necessarily correlate to being the best defender on your team or in the league. Uh, and a lot of the great defenders – do get those cost turnovers, but uh, it's it's not always one to one. The great defenders and the guys with high amounts of cost turnovers. Yeah, no doubt. And there's so many variables too, because when you think about an on-ball defender, and you're thinking about okay, you know they might have the toughest matchup. Obviously, that can make a pretty big difference. Um, maybe nobody's scoring on them, but you're sliding to them. Um, maybe you don't, you don't have to slide to them and they could just kind of lock somebody down. You got all these cause turnovers that look really awesome because cause turnover actually adds up to a, a percentage of a goal, right? Because I mean, if a possession is equal to a third of a goal, you know, right. then, then you can start figuring out if that's worth, you know, a two way swing, right? Take it away from them and gain it to you. Maybe it's worth 0.66 of a goal. If you take the ball away from somebody early on in a possession and get it for yourself. Um, yeah. But then there's also the element of like, you know, how long did that one-on-one -on -one last? How many moves did it take for that attackman or midfielder to beat you? It's uh, like um, the uh, quote from Jerry Byrne play defense as long as you as well as you can for as long as you can and try to make people double and triple move you so that your defense can help whereas if you get beat quickly then there's nothing we're going to be able to do it's just going to be over before it started before the defense could do anything about it that's um, a great point yeah because in the, that's that's the thing that i'm concerned about with potentially tracking this is a lot of short sticks on teams that slide and recover will have a high burn rate, right? Because it will look like they were slid to a lot. When in reality, take like Dominique Alexander and the archers, they get a big chunk of Dodgers and yeah, then they get slid to a lot, uh, but they recover so well behind those slides. And that chunk that Dominique or Mark McNeil or Tyler Fister will get, right, 40 yards, 35 yards away from the cage, that throws off the Dodgers' course, slows down the Dodger, and makes it a lot easier to slide to. So, yeah, yeah whether there's, there's no one right way to play defense, right? You can play defense on an island well for a long time without a slide, or you can just get a big piece and slide and recover. Every team defense has a different goal, so measuring that, with some nuance, I don't want to just go ahead and measure it without that considered in. So there's a, there are a lot of factors to consider. Yeah. Although getting that chunk, I think is such a key to probably not having a slide. Um, it's when somebody doesn't get a chunk that you've got real problems and you're going to have to go immediately. Um, it really is something that I plan on studying, um, 
over the course of the next month or two is I, I want to go back and look at all of the defensemen in, in the PLL and their attack matchups and look at their technique as to whether they played backpedal and poke, turn and run, or whether they played more like bump and run. And I also want to do the same thing for the shorties, take a look at how they played. Um, preliminarily, it seems to me that when you back off, and this is not just based on what I saw in the PLL, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, is when you back off with your stick out, you're not going to be able to stop a def, uh, an attackman from gaining really good position on the island tight enough to be able to even step back and shoot because you're not getting a chunk of them. Whereas if you can get them off track with bumps, the way Matt Landis would, you can bump them wider and all of a sudden you can get up to the island and be able to actually give ground up there. Mm -hmm. When you're, when you're taught how to play defense early on, everyone's like, push them out. But you can't push these guys out. If you push them out too hard, they're spinning on you or bouncing off of you, and they're initiating contact on you. That's like what Zed does all day. So what you really have to be able to do, and it's back to a Jerry Byrne uh, quote, you have to try to capture them. He says, he talks about capturing somebody in a V-hold. And you look at that, you look at the Apple-Rambo matchup. And Apple did a really good job of he, he, he gave ground, but he captured him in his V-hold. And you watch BJ Grill, and he was capturing him, he was capturing guys in a reverse V-hold. Now, he also may give ground sometimes and had a size disadvantage, but uh, Rowlett would capture guys in his, in his reverse V-hold. The idea of capturing somebody is being able to soak them in and bring them in and control them with their own momentum as opposed to trying to jack the crap out of somebody, push them out, and, and, and just absolutely hammer turn them, which to me is where you saw a lot of guys spinning underneath and getting easy shots that couldn't be slid to. Um, so th those are some of the things I want to see because I kind of feel like these short sticks that use more hip turn foot reposition – if you want to learn more about that, go to at uh, Casey Wheel. He talks a lot about this on Twitter – uh, strength coach from out in San Diego, but hip turn and foot reposition. Brian McCormick at Brian McCormick talks about this all the time. He did a study on it, but it's it's been proven to be quicker than drop steps. A drop step is a back pedal and a pivot and an open up that has been standard operating procedure for the poke and drop model forever. Uh, but but actually, if you watch defensive backs and basketball players and the way they actually move. Um, they tend to use hip repositioning and um, and hip, as a, a foot repositioning and hip turns as opposed to pivoting drop steps. And I and, and when we go back and watch those shorties that are the best, I guarantee you that's what they're doing. They're moving laterally. They're getting chunks of people. They're forcing them wider, um, and that is a, a, an amazing technique that I think should be used in concert with the back off poke because you can use both uh, but i want to get your thoughts on that well i'm gonna fire it right back to you i want to know uh you named rowlett and bj grill and i agree those guys played really well and apple on rambo uh do you know or do you have to go back at the film uh which shorties played that way that you were just talking about the hip reposition i need to go back 
I haven't looked closely enough at it. I looked more closely at the defenseman and I probably cut off more, cut up more clips. And I think it's going to be really interesting. So I will get back to you on that. Um, but on the topic of defensemen, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Eddie Glazner, who forget about his abilities with the ball or on the ball or any of that, because it's all very good, but his off the ball abilities to, to communicate and process and be in position is, was just such a thing of beauty. Um, I, I could listen to that guy talk defense all day. And I have uh, got to know Eddie a little bit, did a podcast with him and he's uh, he's as good to talk to on a podcast as he is to listen to during a game. But tell me some of your thoughts about Eddie's mic'd up, uh, abilities and, and the way it manifested itself for the Redwoods. I mean, he's he's going to be the best mic'd up. Some people love the trash talk. I'm fine with the entertainment value of other types of mic'd up guys, but he's the best mic'd up player in the league. Uh, just to get that insight into what's going on, and he's directing that whole defense there. Um, the the way that they were able to defend without Landis, I thought Finn Sullivan did a great job stepping in. Um, Hugh Krantz played well. Uh, that whole defense, man, they're just – they're always on the same page. Some of the most interesting defensive huddles to listen to. Uh, and you look at the type of shots that they give up. They give Troutner the shots that he wants to see. And uh, – Coach Stagg said it in the championship last year in a huddle. If he can see it, he can save it, right? They want to try to move the ball. Um, so he, he he's susceptible to those catch-and-shoot looks, uh, which sounds obvious, right? All goalies are. He probably is more than others. Um, but they just – they give him those unassisted shots, uh, and they really make teams – work for those unassisted shots, right? They don't give them good shots from uh, from the island or from X. A lot of those shots are fading away from the cage. Uh, and they just don't let teams get to good areas. They protect the paint better than anyone. Uh, I, I think when we dive into the shot charts and Trotner's shot chart, you're going to see – fewer shots from the middle really than any other defense than the whip snakes who also just give burn only shots from the pipes. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing uh, to watch them collapse. Um, like in that whip snakes game, you know, that, that goal line pick down with a shorty for Zed and they would sort of switch it and then double it. And then, and then every, every defensive player on, the Redwoods was literally collapsed into us an area the size, almost the size of a crease in front of the crease. A little when uh, was that when Harbison crashed down? Yeah, I think so. I can't remember who was on who was on defense uh, on the shorty, but it, it became a double team, and then all of a sudden everyone's just collapsing. And it was phenomenal. It, it was it was fun to watch them play, and it's fun to listen to to Glazner. It's fun to watch the way all those guys play. Um, let's talk a little bit about goalies, though. I mean. How about Blaze? I mean, there's a lot of great goalies, and we can talk about all of them if we want to. But but let's start off with with, with Blaze Ritter a little bit this year. What a great guy! And I just love the fact that this guy 
is a starting forward in the NLL. It tough as nails, unbelievable hands, can score goals. Had a five-goal game for the Philadelphia Wings last year, and he's also the best goalie in the world and a great dude. But what, what would you say characterizes him as, as what, he, what makes him so special? I think his poise. I, like Goalies are just a different breed in general, and a lot of them are animated, and uh, it, a lot of the goalies take on that responsibility that Glazner does, right, where they're shouting out commands, um, and they'll hand gesture, and they'll, they'll ask for calls, and, uh, you know, they're usually the loudest player on the defense. But Blaze, especially after the shots that he saw, he saw more fast break shots than any goalie, more assisted shots, more shots from between the hash marks. Those three right there, like those are the spots that you want to get to, the times you want to shoot. Yeah. And Blaze still had – he finished with the second-best save percentage um, after the championship. But he still saved – 60%, which is unheard of. Uh, and he he's just poised after seeing those fast break shots. I thought that they, that he might see fewer of those um, since Chaos wasn't running as much in transition that they weren't going to get run on. Uh, but they still have so many fast break shots after those, uh, after those face-off losses, which is creates some of the best – fast break opportunities as we saw from Joe Nardella and the whip snakes. Um, so for him to be able to stand in there and face some really tough shots, I thought he was goalie of the year for a reason, hands down. He, uh, it, with all due respect to what Kyle Burnlor and that defense did, yeah. no goalie in the league saw the type of shots that Blaze did. Uh, he saved as many as any of them. One of the most interesting things about looking at Blaze, as well as, honestly, all the goalies in the league in their own way, but, but none of them do what everybody is taught to do. And I don't say that in any critical way whatsoever. I mean, look at Blaze's stance. Um, he stands pretty straight up. His stick is, is more like sort of you know, diagonal, not straight up. He doesn't have this like really, you know, uh, sort of the classic stance that everybody and all these, you know, goalie coaches are all teaching is like, you know, get low wide stance, you know, like a linebacker, put your right arm out, look through. And it's, which all, by the way, looks so stiff. And when you look at the way Blaze plays, it's the farthest thing from stiff. He, he stands there and, and just observes what's going to happen. And, and then he does get into his own, his own ready position. That's a little different from his starting ready position, but it's based on just the play. Um, and the other thing he does – go ahead, what? That's partly because of how much offense he plays indoors and just growing up. He's just a lacrosse player first, goalie second. I think so. I do. I mean, he grew up playing a lot of, a lot of box lacrosse. Um, he played up in Aquasasne. I remember seeing Blaze Reardon actually when my son was playing in the Founders Cup in 2015, five years ago. Um, he was uh, – he was playing for the Akwesasne Junior B team in the Founders Cup. Um, I think they might have won it. They were really good. And I remember like, oh, that's the goalie from Albany. He's pretty good. That kid's slick, great hands. And, you know, little did we know just how slick and how great hands. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so I think part, it's partly that. I, I, I think that nobody, if you look at an attackman sneaking the pipe on man up, they're not going to have a really stiff 
position with their stick way out, you know, in a straight arm. And if they want to be able to make a really tough catch, uh, they will sink their hips a little bit and be ready for it. But their stick isn't going to be right in front of their face. They want to be able to, they want to be able to see, um, you know, so it's, it's really interesting. And, and also the way he cuts down so much angle, he cuts down angle big time on inside shots. Um, where all of a sudden he'll just be stepping out and, um, and he has an amazing sense for, you know, matching, matching sticks and knowing where, knowing where people are shooting, which is another unbelievable trait of Blaze Reardon that is counter to what is taught sometimes because you'll hear coaches and goalie coaches say, never guess, wait for the ball to be in the air, you know, react. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't ever do that, uh, but I am saying that there's times when you'll never make a save if you just wait to do that because you don't have enough time. Um, you're going to have to read a shooter. And I think he might be just absolutely brilliant at reading shooters the same way box goalies are. Box goalies are unbelievable at reading shooters and reading your eyes and your body language. And every goalie does it to a certain degree. It's just that some have been trained so much not to do that, that they lose the value of reading the play, which is just as important knowing what people can do based on their angle, how much time they have, you know, as well, obviously a scouting report. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. He, uh, last year he led the league in clean save percentage. He just, caught so many and I think that was a big reason why they were so lethal in transition and why Newman was able to get so many two-point shots because he's catching them cleanly and he's one of the best outlet throwers in the league uh this year I think Troutner led in clean save percentage but Blaze is usually he's there before the shot which is incredible <laughs> it really is what um switching gears let's talk a little bit about two-point shots um, give me your uh, opinion on 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 two pointers and and the value of them and and how you think it's going to evolve and change and be either taken advantage of or defended in the future. Yeah, I think we saw more this summer uh, in different types of scenarios. I think I think Mike Chanichuk kind of started the trend last year. Um, obviously, the arc coming in from 16 to 15 made it more available. Um, Chanichuk was just lights out on the power play last year. We saw Perkovic do the same this summer. I think the big thing for me was how many were bounced. Uh, goalies just could not get a read. I don't know if it was that turf in Utah, if it was different than the turf that most goalies are used to. But goalies were saving about 50% of shots that were bounced from two-point range. You know, usually goalies save about 85% of two-pointers. So it, the earth was the best two-point shooter in the league this summer. Yeah, it really was. I wonder if it's uh, played on different services, uh, you know, different service every week next year that, 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 that the percentage will go down and that using the earth, you know, which is why bounce shots kind of went away a little bit anyways because of, of field turf. Yeah, and I'm curious to see – if it impacts the way that defenses play. So uh, Terry Foy mentioned this, that, that this was a breakout summer for the two-point arc and uh, that defenses have adjusted to the arc and they adjust the way that they play. I'm curious for your thoughts 
do you think defenses uh, are a little more aware of the arc, or do you think that the game is just trying to think of who said it? But I think it was Matt McMahon on Twitter saying how the pro game has changed. It's more compact now. So I think Terry's point was that uh, the arc coming in has compacted defenses because they're used to that 16-yard arc or they're used to the box. So now they're they're playing within the 15-yard arc. And Matt McMahon was mentioning that the pro game is just so much more condensed now because of the box players in the league. Uh, do you think it's more of the box players that have shrunk the field uh, and shrunk the, those adjacents or the two-point arc or a little bit of both? Yeah, it's so interesting. And I was noticing that too, particularly early in the championship series. I felt like it was so packed in and so jammed up. And I was wondering the same thing, if it had something to do with the, the two-point arc being tighter. But then I was thinking of that might, you know, if you can shoot from farther out, why wouldn't it pull people yeah. out? When, yeah. you look at, when you look at, you know, look at Maryland. I, I did a podcast yesterday with um, John Tillman. I mean, they, they've run a, an incredible offense. I loved watching them play in 2019. And I think they ran similar offense in 2018. And they seemed really packed in, too. They seemed really condensed. It goes back to, uh, you know, a quote from the late great Dave Huntley, which, which he says, everything that happens outside of about 15 yards is all noise, which I agree with. So part of it is Matt McMahon's saying that the pro game is tighter. I agree. I think having Canadians that can, can box players – that are tighter, but, but Maryland doesn't have a ton of box players and they play that way. So I think it in, in Penn state will shrink right in too. Um, when, because at the end of the day, when you start like making a defense rotate and you got to bang the ball, you got to be in shooting range. So you, you can't, you just can't be wide when you're really, really attacking. But the one thing I think I saw that spreads the defense out, even when they don't want to be spread out and even during the course of real attacking is when the ball moves. And I think what ended up happening was defenses were able to pack in earlier in the championship series when the teams weren't playing as good of team offense and the ball was dying on one side of the field and in one person's stick. Whereas when you'd see, just remember um, some plays with the whip snakes where the ball would like zip from one wing to the other and then, you know, Brad Smith is skipping it back through and, and all of a sudden there, there were some lanes and you were because you, you did have to get out to play a two point shooter. And then all of a sudden there were opportunities to, to, to skip the ball and swing it. Um, and I think the ball movement with with all the teams that got better at their ball movement, and they all did. Um, I think it I think it opened it up and, and it felt less congested to me. Whereas early on, it was like, man, this is, this is really jammed up. And, and it was just probably not as good a team offense, honestly. Yeah, I think that, that I agree with that. There were a lot, of, uh, a lot of condensed play and a lot of free doubles, right? The guys who were elevating weren't elevating for a purpose. They were just playing outside the play. Um, I think early in the series, the advantage definitely went to the defense. Regarding Maryland... It's really interesting that you mentioned them, right? Because in a pre-shot clock era, they were never that condensed. True. So we were talking about that yesterday. I mean, all of a sudden, when you're trying to score for the for the whole time, it it, it makes you get into scoring position instead of just banging it around in circles. Right. 
goes back to alley dodges, uh, like pre-shot clock, it wasn't so inefficient to take a shot down the alley because it fought off the shot clock warning or the stall warning or whatever the rule was at the time, right? So there's a little bit of incentive to just get any shot you could, right? Shoot it low and away. If you miss, it's fine. It's actually good. But that value just isn't there now. The shot, it, it definitely used to be a more efficient shot than it is. And I think we're seeing at the college level and then the, that, those college offenses that these guys are playing in um, is impacting the pro game um, for that more condensed style. We're just seeing teams attack those efficient shots. It's not about, you know, fighting off the clock or the stall warning anymore. It's really about putting the ball in the back of the cage as it should be and just getting to efficient areas. No doubt. It was interesting to look at two, the, when, the way the Redwoods had two two-point shooters. That really, that really was a big man-up advantage for them because all of a sudden, yeah. top righty shooter and their top center. You saw know. the whip sneaks really pressed out. I think Ryder might have had two assists to Clark Peterson on the power play, just yeah, skipping well. through because Earhart and Dunn were right in Miles Jones and Sergio Perkovic's face. Well, usually in those five-man rotations, when the ball is with Ryder as he's carrying it up, and they've got that three-man rotation that occupies, basically occupies three players. So that leaves, that leaves two players. And, and really the one player on the backside would usually get all the way down to the backside right, down to Pedersen. But he had to stay up. And now it was a, and now it was a backside. You know, there was it. It really just became either a skip to Peterson or the crease is open. Um, and so that was pretty interesting. You know, not, not a bad idea to have two 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 point threats um, in your in your man up. It, it it opens things up. You know, big time. Um, that that was that was really interesting. And and the other thing I wanted to mention back to the point of everything jammed up. I feel like early on. Um, the Dodgers were running into doubles a lot more and, and, and later on they were slowing down and making it and the, and the best, the, the best Dodgers, even, even Sergio Perkovic, if you recall one of his last goals, it wasn't a two pointer was kind of a slow in and out right on the fringe of should we go or not? And mm -hmm. that's what, you know, both Macintoshes did all day. And, and that's what, uh, you know, who's the MIDI, uh, the Princeton MIDI, the lefty for the Archers? Um, oh. Ambler. Yeah, Ryan Ambler's great. Ambler was great at that. And he was able to kind of poke himself through gaps and it became, and obviously, you know, the Canadians did that the whole time and they'll, they'll kind of, you know, on the chaos. Um, and, and that's, that's also, uh, how Zach Courier plays, you know, I mean, he's just in and out and he's down by the goal line at his natural side. And he's, he's not running into traffic. Um, and I think that the players that run with full speed and get shots off are, are certainly scary, but they're kind of easier to slide to than the guys that you just don't know what exactly they're doing, especially if they can feed. Totally. Joe, um, before we go, uh, one more time, tell everybody how to get access to your newsletter. It's so good. Everybody should really subscribe to this. Appreciate it. Uh, 
premierlacrosseleague.com. It's called the 10 man ride. Uh, we have a subscription link there. The links in my Twitter bio at Joe Keegs on Twitter. We're weekly now. I miss going daily during the tournament. I really do miss having those games, but <laughs> we all do. Joe. We all do. They, they, they're going to they're gonna have to do like a Christmas special or something and just get the band back together for a nice little uh, two week bubble. Something like That'd be that. Amazing. Um, but uh, as always, I love talking lacrosse with you. Um, thank you for all the work you're putting in. Let's do this again, either a webinar or another podcast. Uh, once you kind of compile all your uh, 2020 stats. But uh, anyways, Joe, thanks so much for coming on and uh, have a great day. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate you having me.